0: Here we were in Jerusalem, and we were studying at Hartman. We're studying Jewish stuff and Jewish texts with these amazing Jewish thinkers and leaders. uh, And Yehuda Kurtzer decides it's probably a good idea to give a lecture about the state of the Jewish people in America today on July 4th. I love when people take something that you kind of already know but analyze it a little differently so that you get a, a different perspective on it which is what I loved about L. Hartman stuff that we talked about last time um, that we know what's happening we can feel it we see it all around us but to name it and give it some structure is a way for m- me often to be able to hold it a little bit differently and analyze it in ways that help me feel like I'm moving forward rather than just kind of being in it churning, exactly. The lecture that I'm going to be teaching from uh, is available online. It's on YouTube. So just know that if you want to revisit this or you want to send it to somebody, you can either send the Zoom class that we're going to do, um, or that, w- that we're recording, or you can send Yehuda's lecture um, to somebody who you think might, might be interested in this topic. Um, I am not I'm not giving this to you as my thought. This is Yehuda Kurtzer's lecture. I'm going to teach you Yehuda's material. I agree with it, obviously, or I wouldn't be bringing it to you. Like, I, like, I, I really think it's a cogent argument. But, I'm, but you're arguing with a straw man if you want to say, okay, that's garbage, I don't believe that. Okay, that's fine. Like, I, this is not me this is Yehuda that I found very interesting and I'm happy for us to have a conversation about whether you agree or disagree or whatever Um, so I'm not trying to make too strong a case or to try to sell this to you I'm bringing it to you because I found it uh, interesting Um, As a leader, as a Jewish leader, this particular lecture was very important for me. As a Jewish professional, this lecture was really important for me. So it's not just intellectual. It's actually about my job. (laughs) Um, And so actually, as a congregation, I think it's helpful also for you to have a window into what are some of the anxieties and the stresses on your Jewish leadership, and upcoming Jewish leadership, um, and I'll be frank and honest with you about that part of his about his talk. So we talked. I, I gave you the framing in terms of language last time: the Jewish problem, right? And like that makes us a little nervous because, right, Nazis used that language to great effect: the Jewish problem. So when I say the Jewish problem, when he termed this lecture, you know, the Jewish problem on American soil. The problem is not that there are Jews, right? That's Nazi propaganda, obviously. The problem that we're talking about is Jewish exceptionalism, right? That has been a Jewish problem since we lost sovereignty after the destruction of the Second (laughs) Temple in 70 of the Common Era, Once we were no longer sovereign in our own territory, with our own religious tradition and our own religious text defining and guiding how we lived in that society that we controlled, from then on, Jews were exceptional. They weren't accepted as, like, kind of the norm in the countries in which they lived in the diaspora, they were always treated as something other and something different. Partly, that's because we continue to self-define as something other and something different, meaning we're a part of the Jewish people. So if you don't completely assimilate, you are stuck in the category of particularism, where you're a ger, you're a stranger, you're an alien, in some ways to the culture in which you live. That's the kind of context we're talking about the Jewish problem. So, we talked at Torah Study a little bit this past week about. So, what was one answer to Jewish particularism? One answer was a political answer. And that got a lot of energy and attention. Right? So, the 19th and 20th centuries were largely about answering the problem of Jewish particularism with a political solution. And the political solution was Israel, Israel Zionism, Jewish nationalism. Give Jews a state where they run the state. They run the government. They are the natives in some way. And then guess what? You have a country where you have criminals, and you have murderers, and you're finally no longer exceptional. That's one answer. And that's the answer that gets most attention in the 19th and 20th century. And of course, we got the state of Israel and that, of course, answered Jewish particularism, right?
1: Well, when you talk about exceptionalism, when we say American exceptionalism, Sorry, exceptionalism, exceptionalism, there's an implication that America's better than everybody else. When you talk about Jewish exceptionalism, is that a value judgment or just no. just as something different? Something different. Okay, because American they're exceptionalism exceptional. is generally... Yeah, right.
0: The Jews are
2: they're,
0: not Spanish. Different. Okay. They're not Yemenite. They're not Ethiopian. They're not Russian. They're Jews. They're members of the Jewish people. And that makes them, right, exceptional to whatever.
1: But reg- not in the superiority sense.
0: Not in the superiority. Well, when I give you the lecture that Deborah Lipstadt did on anti Semitism, one form of anti Semitism says yes, Jews are exceptional in that they think they're better. Huh. And they're scheming all the time, <laughs> and they're smart, and they have money, and they have connections, and therefore, they have to be stopped. So that, so yes, there is a way that anti-Semites use um, Jewish exceptionalism as yes, a superiority thing. But that's not what you mean. It in the sense of I'm, different,
2: yes, the exception, An exception the exception, the
0: exactly, exactly. Not
2: and yet, Mark Twain, a very fine American writer, wrote a beautiful essay on the exceptionalism meaning the special the specialness of Jews right. so
0: Mark Twain and others have written in good ways yes. about the ways that Jews are different and have contributed out of that difference and we can all get there and get with yes. that but that's not but that's no. not a problem so when we talk about the problem well, we're William talking isn't. about when we're treated as other In ways that are not helpful and not so good. So, one answer. Do you have more? I I do. For the LA County. I I do. So. We're going to get a million (laughs) tonight. I love that. I love that. This is Reconstructionism. We're learning a little Torah. We're doing a little political action. Um, All right. So, So, one answer was Zionism. And what we know is that that failed that failed in terms of solving the issue of Jewish exceptionalism. Because Israel is not treated like all other countries. And, 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 and again, and we said this in Torah study, we're not going to get into this side or that side of what that means. But I think we can all agree Israel remains ex- exceptional among the nations in that It's still identified as the Jewish state, and therefore, fill in the blank, right? Whether we agree or disagree, it it, it didn't solve the problem. All right. So, but not all theorists and not all activists, says uh, Yehuda Kurtzer looked at solving the Jewish problem through politics. It's not the only answer. Jewish sovereignty in its own country is not the only approach. He says, the normali- normalizing the condition of the Jewish people and ending the story of us as exceptional will not be political sovereignty alone. It just won't be. It can't be, because we've already seen that doesn't work. So he quotes people, he doesn't quote, he points to people like Ahad Ha'am, Buber, Hannah Arendt, Franz Franz Rosenzweig, and others who were not arguing that Jewish sovereignty was the answer to Jewish exceptionalism. What he says is that... um, he, he points to someone like Rosenzweig who he, and he brought us a famous quote from Rosenzweig that says, Zionism is better as a diagnostician or pathologist rather than a healer. I'll mm. <laughs> well, let you sit with that for a while. All right. so, um, the losing position because what won was Jewish sovereignty and all the focus on political. And, and I'm not arguing it wasn't a good thing that we have sovereignty in this. I'm not suggesting that. We're talking about, OK, after that, has it fixed the issue? No. OK, so who lost in that argument, in that debate, in that conversation? The losing positions, he says, are ones that suggest spiritual, religious, cultural, and study aspects of Jewish peoplehood as being critical to solving the issue of the Jewish problem. So that, that set of arguments lost. All right. So he now looks at the landscape. This is July 4th. He's talking about right to us, you know, a lot of us being American Jews, Canadian Jews who are there in, in Israel. And he says, so what's happened because of all the f- in part because of all the focus on politics as the solution, at the same time that what's happening in America is more and more and more a focus on the political. He says the political has become the dominant discourse of American Judaism itself. So, just take that in for a second. It's not just a symptom, it's not just a thing. Politics has become the dominant discourse of American Judaism itself. I hope you begin to see the problem with that. Like That should be a troubling statement, right? American Judaism is defined mostly by politics. That should be problematic. And that's the rest of his lecture. <laughs> right? How and why, that is deeply problematic. Oh, and and what, what do we do about it, right? He's a, he's a pragmatist. He's not somebody who's going to gushry about it. He's going to identify it. He's an intellectual. He, he's just, I love him. He talks so fast, I don't understand half of what he says. Like, it's just, and I can't take it in. Like, I had to listen to this lecture 37 times. And I transcribed it, people. I typed every word he said. Okay, So All right, yeah. All right, so um, he says... Our proposed solution to the Jewish problem that we face is to get even more political as an approach to solving all kinds of problems. And as we were warned by those thinkers we rejected, we may be missing the chance to do something remarkable as a Jewish community living in an unprecedented situation. So all those folks that we said, no, 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 no. It's a political sovereignty thing. That's what's going to fix all of this. All the folks that lost, he's saying we were warned by them, right, Um, that we may be missing and rejecting the opportunity to do something remarkable as a Jewish community living in an unprecedented situation. He really believes that living in America And our experience in America is an unprecedented situation for the Jewish people. And I have to agree. I am somebody, I'm a deep reconstructionist, I believe. We walk two parallel paths. We walk one foot equally in both the American civilization and the Jewish civilization. And never before has it been possible like it has been here. And I, I get all the hysteria around, it could happen here too. I get it. It could happen. Don't think it can't happen. Jews in Germany thought they were safe. Like we all get that. We all know, like we know that that position's out there. We know that thinking's out there. But if we really look at the evidence, it is unprecedented. How long has it been? How old is America now? Years. How much? Two. Two hundred and something. Years. Two and change, right? So no break, only only a growth of acceptance and a growth of entering, which we're going to talk about, which he's going to kind of lay out for us. But like it is unprecedented. And so if we only focus on Jewish sovereignty as the political answer to the Jewish problem, we may be missing, he's saying, and all of these other things, an unprecedented opportunity to make Judaism about something else. Not a political answer. Not a set of political discussions. Not a set of political arguments. Not just Jewish political sovereignty, which clearly hasn't fixed. Right? A lot.
1: When you say Jewish political, the the political approach. (laughs) Are you saying Israel?
0: Israel, uh, Israel, as the panacea. Well, you're not talking about Israel Republicans. Israel as the answer,
1: but not like Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. Hundred
0: percent, Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. Because it has become political. The Judy, that's what he was arguing. That we are now dealing with the fact that politics is driving American Judaism. All right. So we're, and he's going he's gonna to lay out his argument. You can agree or disagree. Uh, Good luck disagreeing with it <laughs> because we're li- we're seeing it we're living it we're dealing with it like we're we're holding it okay so um but but I do want to say that I guess what I'm trying to do is set up that this is not just a new idea there were people arguing early on that politics will never be the way to deal with right Judaism writ large like and the Jewish project let's put it that way that. The Jewish project can't just be focused on politics. Even, even Zionism, it's not, it's not it. That's not it. It's part of it. And thank God for it. Right? And thank God for Israel. Um, Shalom Hartman Institute is in Jerusalem. It's not in America. The Hartmans went to Israel. Um, so thank God for that. Uh, but, but, but we have to focus on what's happening and what, what happens when we read out all those other voices who said it can also be about something else. Right. So he argues, uh, Yehuda Kurtzer argues, that Jews have been undergoing rapid changes in America over the last several generations, and that we have made a category error about those changes. He argues that the changes are revolutionary, and we are treating them as evolutionary. And he says there are three categories, three areas of massive change that are gripping the Jewish community in America. Uh, and that we have made the same mistake about each of those categories that we have called them evolutionary changes. He says they are revolutionary changes, and in order to really address them properly and really take advantage of this moment in history, we're going to have to understand them as revolutionary, not evolutionary. Right? Like we have to kind of snap out of it. And he's going to explain a little bit about why he thinks that. He yes.
2: So okay, just to clarify. Yes. <laughs> Evolutionary versus
0: revolutionary, meaning one is more dire? More, more. Not, it, because I don't want to put a dire has a judgment to it. So is one more dire than the other? I, I don't want to put it. He's not putting a judgment on it. I think what he's saying is it makes it a little bit more urgent that we respond and take it seriously and analyze it and look at it and figure out what to do about it, that makes sense. What, taking advantage of it, right. and also mitigating against the dangers of it, it's not dire, it's urgent. If it's an evolutionary change, it's like, well, we'll see where it is in 30 years. My, my child will think about it differently and her children will think about it differently. Should I live to see such a thing? Right, so... But, but, it, but that's not urgent, yeah. right? And so he suggests, I think what he's suggesting is that revolutionary means we have to pay attention now, now right yesterday, right? To, to what's happening. It's existential. It's existential. It, I think that's a great word, George. It's existential, the changes that are happening. And if we don't address them, yes, It will be dire, but it's also if we jump on them, we have an existential window and an opportunity. That if we miss it, who knows if these circumstances will ever happen again for the Jewish people, America 2020. Right? Right. He's saying these are unprecedented circumstances, both for the good and for the uh oh, (laughs) we better wake up. All right, so what are these? What are these changes? What are these three areas? Identity, he argues, is one. And he said to us, it's late. Alliteration helps. Identity, ideology, and infrastructure. Is it, there an R in infrastructure? <laughs> is it infrastructure? <laughs> yeah, I can't spell in English. Imagine in Hebrew, I'm a disaster. <laughs> infrastructure okay so these are the three eyes the the three categories where he sees revolutionary change happening in America that we are treating as a Jewish community as evolutionary so that we need to correct our lenses right we need to put on different glasses to read this clearly He says, for legitimate reasons, we've processed these changes as evolutionary because it's a defense mechanism.
3: Right.
0: Hmm. Somebody who studies the brain mm-hmm. might understand a little bit of something like about that, right? Um, you too.
2: <laughs>
0: Over there, Mark Fish. So um, it's a defense mechanism. We're not used to the pace of change being fast as a Jewish people, um, unless it's about huge geopolitical ruptures like the Holocaust the Inquisition, um, or Zionism, right? The formation of the state of Israel. Of course, that's an abrupt, huge change. But in general, we don't, we don't like, well, we haven't we have experienced change as fast. And we're very skeptical of a rupture between tradition and a change uh, to live in times of change, of, of deep change, without whiplash, right? Like we, we, we're, we're a little nervous about that. Like if we call it revolutionary. How are we going to survive that without like having whiplash if it's existential that could rock things in a way that makes us really uncomfortable? He says we're also allergic to the idea of fast change outside of geopolitical rupture. We're just allergic to it like we don't we just don't like it all right and he he made this comment in the middle of this lecture, like right here, um, which I think is kind of a separate statement, but I thought it was. Interesting, he said the the irony is that we're a community fixated on continuity and we're one of the most stable and continual Jewish communities ever in history. Mm -hmm. We are obsessed with Jewish continuity. Obsessed. I just had a young woman come sit on my couch yesterday who's marrying a Jewish man and she was raised Catholic. But she doesn't really believe any of that. That's not really her faith it's not her faith. Uh, her father's a total atheist. Her mother was the one who kind of transmitted some of the Catholicism, but whatever. You know, and she said her in-laws are pressuring her to convert to Judaism so that the babies mm-hmm. will be Jewish babies. Mm-hmm. She said, I was already going to participate in everything. I wasn't going to do church. Of course I was going to... Ra- he's Jewish. Of course he does, her, her fiance doesn't care about God synagogue, anything. I'm telling you this for a reason. And then she says, and she starts to cry. And she said, why, if I have a Jewish uterus, would it make my in-laws love their grandchildren more than if I just brought them to everything and did everything Mm -hmm. and we did Judaism and we just welcomed them into it? Mm -hmm. And she said, and it's made it now so that it's the last thing in the world I want to do. That I believe and I talked to her about this, I said, first of all, it's PTS Judaism at work. It is all about fear. It is all about the obsession with Jewish continuity. She wasn't suggesting they raise them both. She was saying I I made it clear to them I was gonna bring them to everything and raise them Jewish and whatever. It wasn't good enough. Her uterus wasn't a Jewish uterus. So what's What's the difference? And I'm not making fun of these people she's talking about. Truly, I'm not judging them. I'm saying we have to be aware of what's operating there. right? The Jewish continuity is an obsession. And what Kurtzer is saying is it's ironic that it's an obsession in one of the most stable, thriving, continuous Jewish communities in the history of the diaspora. Well, it's
2: about the tradition. Then you go back, and that was how, you know, the only way they would be 100% sure whose baby it was was through
0: the mother. Sure, but we're not anymore. We're not dealing with that anymore. So what we have to deal with is the thinking and the approach of these parents who are alienating their daughter-in-law to be, who are already saying, we won't love our, or we won't treat our grandkids the same if they come out of you before mikvah. That's, a, that's something we have to take seriously. Anyway, I just thought it was like, he's, he's right. Like, It's ironic that we are so hyper focused on continuity that we're driving people away. Yeah.
2: I think. Yes, George. But it's a problem of definitions. Some people wouldn't consider that a problem.
0: What? Some people would not consider well, what a problem? The conversion itself. Gonna raise the kids Jewish? That's terrific. It's a
3: definition of what it is that's continuous. Well, it is what the Orthodox what oh
0: yeah, 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 yeah. No, of course. If we have a different of definition, that, that's not what they were saying. That they were not saying her kids would not be Jewish if she didn't convert. I was not clear. They were not saying they would not consider the kids Jewish. What were they saying?
2: What were they saying? <laughs> what did she on?
0: hear them saying?
2: Yeah, to have to they'll
0: still be Jews, but not real Jews. It's, I wouldn't even go that far. They wouldn't be, they'll be Jews, but I think it's ineffable. Because I, right? I think that's what we're dealing with, stuff that's ineffable. They weren't saying that we won't treat them as Jews. They weren't saying it has to be a womb that makes them Jewish. But there was still like a clarity about, right, that, Anyway, all right, I don't want to yeah, linger on that because that's not where we're spending our time tonight. General but, state,
3: perfection is all frequently the enemy of good. And
0: that's, that's, well, and so I guess what I'm saying is Kurtzer is pointing to, uh, so what's perfection? Well, like, that's ridiculous. Well, right that's, now, that's ridiculous. We have a perfect situation. Why do you keep going back to something that's frankly getting in the way of, uh, right, okay. right, exactly, all right. All right, so these three areas, where are the places we're finding some revolutionary shifts happening? He says identity, he has identity. First, he says in the sphere of Jewish identity, in two two generations in this country, we've gone from once upon a time, like maybe someday, right, once upon a time uh, to a real shift in the understanding of differences between Jews and non-Jews. In terms of identity. So he says, for instance, there are no real social or political consequences to being a Jew in America in 2020. I want to say from the get go, I'm taking anti-Semitism off the table. Okay, that is not what we're talking about. Obviously, if you're a Jew and there's anti-Semitism, like obviously, that's not what we're talking about. We will talk about that, but not now. So just looking at regular people, regular American life, he said in 2016, three of the major presidential candidates all have Jewish grandchildren.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Think about that. In two generations, it's gone from you wouldn't marry, you wouldn't have a Jew in your house, or you don't want them to buy a house in your neighborhood or whatever, to three major presidential candidates, including our current president. Have Jewish grandchildren, including our former president, Clinton, and the candidate Hillary Clinton. They have Jewish grandchildren in, in like a couple of generations. Like that, that's revolutionary in terms of people—not just our Jewish identity, but people identifying us as Jews mm-hmm. in America. He says ethnicity does not characterize the difference between Jews and non-Jews anymore in America for the most part. It's not important to Jews anymore, this ethnicity business, nor is it so important for non-Jews when they're looking at the differences between the Jew and the non-Jew. He says, of course, this is focused mostly in metropolitan areas and other places in our country, in pockets of our country. Obviously, this is not the case. But in general, in the large metropolitan areas, he says between conversion, adoption, intermarriage, assimilation. You, you, you can't really make much of an ethnic argument for what it means to have a Jewish identity in America in 2020, right? How many people have converted in? How many people are adopting kids from China and Korea? How many people are converting from other ethnicities, right, that are more primary you know, than the one between Jews and non-Jews anymore uh, in this country?
2: But there are people who do this. Who do what? Who have a problem with identity.
0: Of course. course. So that's why I said those are exceptional. He's saying in general, Carol, when you go to Ralph's, (laughs) people don't look at you as a Jew. And if they find out you're Jewish, it doesn't impact at all how they think about you for the most part. That the way that people would respond who had a problem with that is exceptional. It is not the norm. at least it's not been my experience I don't know about y'all
1: except in the case who uh, there was just an article in the paper the other day about New York City and anti-Semitic incidents and that a large portion of them were people who by their external appearance they were talking about orthodox were identifiably Jewish (laughs) But you're you're talking about People who not by their clothes don't particularly
0: look Jewish or not right. So, but it's 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 beyond. Yeah. So, but the Orthodox uh, still. So of course, if you're Orthodox, you're already presenting as high. I'm a Jew, right? right? Like, Jewish. but but in terms of humor, t- television humor might still use Jewish stereotypes, but in a way that's funny and inclusive. It's not. There's not the division that there used to be between the Jew and the non-Jew right, that that two to three generations ago was absolutely fully in place, right? That there's been a... (coughs) Um, And he, he said something very interesting. In 2012, there was a New York population study done. One out of every 20 Jews in that study, you ready for this? New York City, 2012, one out of 20 Jews in New York had no, Jewish grant, had no Jewish parent, and had not converted. Yeah. Think about that for just one second. Jewish. <laughs> they self-identified oh. as Jewish. So he's saying, if people can self-identify as a Jew, like that, that boundary is now being crossed pretty regularly, and so is the boundary out. Most Jews, he says, in America don't even know there's a boundary. If you want to cross out, there's what do you have to step over actually in this country?
2: Nothing,
0: right? Um, okay, so that is a huge identity revolution that's happened in a couple of generations in this country, um, and he said now our Jewish identity is part of. What what has become the norm is understanding that all of us have hybrid identities. I am a female. I am Jewish. I am gay. I am someone who's had a limb augmentation <laughs> replacement thing, right? I, we have these identities. I'm a Gen Xer, apparently, but I'm on the cusp. So, like, but we have. We have identities, and Jewish is one of those now, where a few generations ago, at least in my grandparents' time, it was the defining identity in America if you were a Jew. That is a revolution. Two generations? That's two generations back from me. That is a revolution. My grandfather arrived here on a boat with one shoe, we were told.
2: was it a Jewish
0: cuz his parents had to,
2: <laughs> his
0: parents had to flee right so so that and, but his identity was a Jewish identity and he did everything he could to to like make sure no yiddish got translated to his son my father did not speak a word of yiddish he understood it because that's what the secret language they used to talk to each other <laughs> the parents right but but, my, but it was clear my father would never speak yiddish god forbid Right? To to do everything they could to mitigate against the fact that Jewish identity was the defining identity two generations ago. That, he's arguing, is revolutionary. Okay. that's number one. And we're not. I'm trying to whatever happened in the news. The
3: question is, it good for the Jews? Which is not. Wait.
0: Wait. say, Say it again? Whatever the news was. Whatever the news was. Is it good or bad for the Jews? My father was sitting in front of the television. Is this good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? Because that's what mattered. Because whatever was being decided was going to have different ramifications for Jews in America than it did for non Jews. Possibly. Right? Possibly. So, right? Was it good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? That's exactly right. I grew up hearing exactly that. Okay. So the first one is identity. The second is, and we're only going to the descriptions that I want to make sure we, before it's time to go, I want to get to what he argues are the consequences of these revolutionary shifts. Okay. I was afraid I wasn't going to have enough material for an hour and a half. Okay. Ideology. This group? I I know. This group? Okay. Identity is one. The next one is ideology. He says there's no shared common ideology of Judaism that is shared by a majority of Jews. Right? right? Even if it's stuff we're rejecting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> stuff we're rejecting like you don't have to just believe it we don't even have a shared common ideology of what we're, we're rejecting <laughs> as common Jewish ideology he says Jewish peoplehood broad support for Israel Jews participating in community and Jewish community and coalitions with other uh, you know, organizations and movements uh, as a Jewish entity in some way is not really so much what it means to be ideologically Jewish anymore right? He says synagogue membership connection to Israel and what we consider common as part of ideology is now contested.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Go talk to Jews about Israel. <laughs> what happens? Right? Go talk to them about synagogues and which synagogue you belong to or what denomination you belong to, right? There's as much fighting about what those things mean in terms of ideology, not identity, ideology, there's so much fighting about that. There's no really sense of shared common ideology. And he says, what we consider common is profoundly contested. And if we just think across the Jewish spectrum of people, we know, and that we deal with all the time, we know that this is absolutely true. So if there's no common ideology, that's a revolution. There was, at one point, a common ideology,
2: right? Um, and, <clears throat> and there isn't anymore. Well, except for the division between Ashkenazi and Sephardim, that, that was always a separation. Right?
0: But I don't know that that's about ideology. That's about practice and traditions. And do you eat beans kidney
2: on Pesach or not?
0: Like right, uh, um, but, and how do you pronounce certain Hebrew words or what, you know, whatever. But I'm not sure that was so much about ideology. But, um, but anyway, even if it was, in America, no. wherever they come from, he's saying, now, two generations, three generations later, there is no common ideology, even one that we reject. All right. He says, next is infrastructure. Institutional infrastructure, he argues, in the Jewish community in America endures, but mostly for technical reasons like endowments. Mm-hmm. The Jewish institutions, the infrastructure that's doing well, that's kind of making it in America right now, have huge endowments. Talk to any member of the board of directors of KI. Mm-hmm. They will tell you the same thing if we only had a bigger endowment, right? It would throw off the interest to to close the gap. What's the gap about? That the infrastructure is not working. 20th century infrastructure for a 21st century American Judaism is not working. And so he says 40% of conservative synagogues have closed over the last several decades. Wow! Think about that for one second. When I grew up, the big shuls, the successful shuls, the women had the best hats and bags and shoes to match. Every like on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur was the conservative shuls. Forty percent have closed in the last several decades. And if if you ever listen to Hein Frankel talk about his father's shul being boarded up. Oh, no. You'll 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 get the the feeling of like what you know. so again, this is not Gushrei Judaism, this is not a Gushrai lecture. This is not to upset everybody um or depress us, it's to say we have to wake up and understand that the infrastructure of a twentieth century Judaism, because it is a revolution, not an evolution, it's not like you put a new wing on the building or you freshen it, you know, or you add a coffee shop. That'll fix it. Like It's revolutionary, the changes that are happening as regards infrastructure, how much it relates to how Jews want to do Judaism today. The infrastructure, there's been a revolution that we had better wake up and pay some attention to. Because if we don't, if it's about large endowments, then we know certain infrastructure, infrastructure, certain synagogues will survive and maybe even thrive, because they get to do whatever they want if they have a huge endowment. What's the other problem with this model? Is it a lot of the things that are being supported right now are being supported by um, private donors? So what are the startups in infrastructure that can get off the ground? Ones that have grants. Ones that have huge families behind the money supporting those startups. so, then the chairman of that board has more influence on what infrastructure is coming into existence in America 2020, right? Startup nation, you know, kind of stuff. The private money involved in that is running what gets going. And I'm not saying that shouldn't be part of it, but, uh, but at Hartman, when I'm talking with my rabbinic colleagues, the ones who are in kind of more startup You know, kind of um, situations are saying it's all about the people who run, who give the grants. Mm -hmm. That's who's deciding what Judaism might look like. Is that what we want? Do we want the power all in the hands, right, of of those major donors? That's very different from a Reconstructionist model where the community builds the project. Y'all support it, y'all decide who's your rabbi and who's not. Y'all decide what happens on the Bima in terms of what you're ready to come to and what you're not. You do. Do you want funders of grants making those decisions? Do you see the difference? I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm just saying, and they aren't either. They're saying, what does it mean to put that kind of power in the hands of the wealthy? So wealthy Jews will decide what Judaism looks like in America in 2020 going forward? Like that's politics. a frightening proposition. It's
2: just like
0: politics. It's just like politics. It's just like politics. So, the, the same concerns we have around politics, revolutionary changes in the system, he's arguing, are all, and, and my colleagues are arguing, are also at work in the infrastructure that's both e- either going to get supported or collapse or what's going to get created going forward. On both ends of that, there's real concern. Well, the Mormons tithe. Right. The Mormons want. tithe? Yes. Because it democratizes yes. support for the institution yes. that they call their religious home. Yes. 100%, and so that's exactly what's happening is the opposite of that. Yes. they
1: So they're, what he's calling revolution, other people would call destruction.
0: I, I think revolution and, always and means
1: deconstruction of American it, Judaism
0: revolution always means an overturning of something right. that we've known evolution mean it's, it means it's going to slowly change it always means some destruction but, but I think what he's saying is that these are, these are moments and I'm going to use this word this is not his word these are moments of rupture mm-hmm. that we need to pay attention to as an American Jewish community if we care about right what becomes of American Judaism?
2: Isn't there a central, um, like reform, a central committee of reform yes. that, that gives money to reform? No. no. Wait. No.
0: She's talking
1: about the support the of synagogues.
2: The support, the support
1: of, of synagogues all comes from the membership.
0: Right, so it's the opposite the synagogues pay dues to the reform movement
2: we pay,
0: we pay hefty dues as the largest reconstruction of synagogue in the universe we pay hefty dues to the movement that's how the movement survives and y'all pay synagogue dues and that money then goes to the movement so you all support the movements it's not the other way around okay I mean, although you could argue the work of the movements then hopefully inspires the membership mm-hmm. to give more. So hopefully it's it's um, what do you call it?
3: Reciprocal. Thank you.
0: Reciprocal. Hopefully it's reciprocal, and and both each enriches you know literally and otherwise the other. All right. He said, and uh huh. Um,
2: all of those. Any of those. Learning in my crew. Um, where they apply to universities? Because I'm sitting here, I taught at UCLA for 25 years, and I finally go to get with help time, the chancellor who's finally leaving. I don't know
3: Um
2: <laughs> I've had all of the anti Semitism.
0: So are you saying, do these categories and the, and the changes in them apply to the university world? I don't know. I would love to hear, I would love to hear someone talk to that. I would love to hear someone say, do, do these feel like they're applying to other institutions? What I can tell you is when we talk about infrastructure, um, he says, by the 1980s, there was more money in private Jewish families than in the entire American Jewish Federation system. Think about that. So, what does that mean, right? So, the money that used to be in federations to fund Jewish museums, Jewish cultural causes, Jewish, you know, those those things outside of synagogue life, by the 80s, it was more money in private Jewish families than in the entire Jewish federation system in America. That is a huge infrastructure change. Because even if it's not in synagogues, it was in federation. My grandparents gave to federation and their synagogue. Yeah. And if the synagogue needed a new roof, they didn't take a vacation. Right. And if the federation really needed them in a given year, they gave up something else. Right. All right. So he's he. The rest of his lecture was really uh, focused on the fact that the politicization of Judaism itself in America is is one of the most pressing challenges that we're dealing with on all fronts. Identity, okay, ideology, put those together for a second. Three quarters of Jews, 70-something percent, outside of orthodoxy, so don't count orthodoxy, Outside of orthodoxy, three-quarters of Jews are intermarrying. Seventy-something percent are intermarrying. Almost the same percentage are marrying people of the same political party. Think about that for one second. About identity and ideology. What does that mean? It means where we're making our key critical decisions about who's like me is political who's of me, religious? who do I share the most with that I would want to call them mine, and they call me theirs, who's other? It's about political ideology and about political <clears throat> identity. Because if it's the same numbers, three quarters, don't care if the partner's Jewish or not Jewish, because that's changed in terms of our identity and our shared ideology. But where had they better be the same as me? What do you vote for? Who do you vote for?
2: But isn't it, it, are we talking about political values vis-a-vis religious values? They could be the same.
3: Answer
0: that question, Jonna. Well. Is it political values or religious values we're talking about?
3: That's, yeah, that people are choosing.
0: I'm going to answer this is what's happened. Okay. he's saying the revolution oh, so is they're, bringing together of those they're not different anymore Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. The Jews will disagree about the values that they will vote on in the booth right. but non-Jews and Jews are more likely to share not all non-Jews I'm saying right. you're likely to pick a spouse who shares your values that are about the voting booth no, that, that's
2: what I was trying to say that, that seems to be
0: what the Swift is. Yeah. That's, That is a huge yeah. change yeah. Yeah. in our identity yeah. Yeah. and our ideology that it's not linked to just Jewish, non Jewish. It's linked to what kind of Jewish. And
2: also, these, the non Jewish people that are marrying the Jewish people yes. are also having that
0: change. Did they ever have an identity and ideology that was tied <laughs> to whatever else they are? I don't care. Right whatever, maybe, maybe not That's not. we're talking about Jewish identity and Jewish ideology and Jewish infrastructure and Jewish revolution might it mean something about America writ large, of course yes, yes. but what that means I don't have time to go into, like I can barely get through <laughs> this material okay. uh, right, so I'm sure it holds as well but, but as a people, and that's part of the reason we're focusing on this is because they didn't claim peoplehood non-Jews did not claim peoplehood their identity wasn't as a Gentile. No. Mm-hmm. No. Their identity may have been as a Christian, mm-hmm. but that's different from peoplehood. That's a religious mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. It's yeah. different it's from what it means to say you're Jewish. Not only how we identify, but how people identify us. Right. Thank you. Okay. All right. So, all right, I'm going to skip this part. <laughs> all right. What are the consequences of politics becoming the main way that we share identity, ideology, infrastructure really isn't necessarily a part of that when we talk about the, the revolution and in Jewish infrastructure. It may. Because already we can see, like, K.I. Uh, Have you ever heard me give a political sermon? No. Mm-hmm. Will you ever hear me give a political sermon? Why not? It's
1: it's not because policy. it's a political it's Dangerous. dangerous.
2: <laughs>
0: We have both. Because it would mean a fracture in the Jewish infrastructure that's KI. Because the ideologies present at KI are strong on both sides. And our identities are now more tied up with who thinks politically like we do than the fact that we're all Jews in this sanctuary on Rosh Hashanah. So I'm not saying it's not a threat to infrastructure, this revolution, but the, the direct consequences are what he terms as follows.
3: Can I just ask a quick question?
2: When did he say okay. this, change, this, this revolution, revolution. revolution, this seriousness, occurred?
0: It has happened in the last couple of generations, but it is intensifying.
2: Okay.
0: So the politicization like, so of I Judaism. Today,
2: last year, ten years, twenty war, years. Is it
0: the politicization? It depends. There's there's levels. Uh huh. Not not having our identity be defined mostly by Jew non Jew has been both a slow process over the last several generations in America, but some things have quickened in the last I don't know pick twenty years. Really. Right when I was. Becoming a rabbi, I can tell you for sure, there was some sense of a Jewish ideology that most Jews felt like they could articulate. That's changed. 20 years, that's changed completely. Israel, Israel, everyone was behind Israel. Everybody, my family sold bumper stickers. Israel must live at the mall in Atlanta in the 70s course my father decided we weren't selling enough so we put on crosses he bought us crosses and then we sold a bunch but but the, the support for Israel was was complete and it was a Jewish ideology period in in 20 years that has completely not only changed and dissolved it's now become as he was pointing out one of the most serious things we argue about as Jews. So, you know, so, so there's some that have been slower over the couple of generations, I, I think. And, um, and infrastructure is one that's been slower, maybe, in some ways. But there are some that have been, I can say, since the time I went to rabbinical school 24 years ago. Wow.
1: Is he saying that it is Judaism that has been politicized
0: or Jews? Oh, or is that true. the same thing? <laughs> so that's a good question. Is it Judaism or is it Jews? And I don't know how you pick which influences which, but for sure it's both. You're just lifting your pen. Okay. All right. So what are the consequences? This is the your device is fully isn't fully protected. Okay. I don't really care. So um, so this is where I said I'm sharing a little bit with you from the inside. Um, He said for Jewish professionals, for rabbis, this is an existential concern and a matter of survival. He had a rabbi say this this exact quote to him. You could roast a pig on Yom Kippur on the front line of the shul, and it would lead to some serious committee discussions. (laughs) (laughs) But if you say the wrong thing about Israel, or American yep. politics, you compromise your job and you incentivize a huge amount of anger in the congregation that threatens your long-term survival. That's
3: interesting.
0: Think about, I mean, of course it's a, you know. it's on the congregation. I mean, of course it's an overstatement, or whatever you call that, a hyperbole. But, but, but think about, I mean, that a rabbi felt that way? That is often how we feel. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you. I could roast a pig on Yom Kippur on the front lawn. Some people wouldn't like it. We'd have to have a couple of meetings. We'd have to bring in a facilitator. Everything would be fine. (laughs) right? But you say the wrong thing as the rabbi from the pulpit about Israel or about American politics, and you might be done. Mm -hmm. You might have to move your family and find another job. He said... It feels for most Jewish professionals that it is unsafe for them to lead their institutions right now. So we can serve, but can we lead? He said, we want people in positions of Jewish leadership who are talented and passionate. But then we criticize their expression of passion, right? And they're, and they're holding any sense of nuance when people want them to take a position. <laughs> so you want people who are talented and passionate and know how to hold nuance, right? Because we deal with a lot of scary big stuff. Um, but then if they don't take the position you want, you criticize them, Right, because they're too nuanced. Damned. To you're work. damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. To what
1: extent is this a function of the democratization of the democratic setup of synagogues, where it, where the people can overthrow the rabbi, I and mean, that doesn't he, exist?
0: This no, because this is new. You used to be able, as a democrat, as a democratic, uh, let's say, most Reconstructionist <laughs> you can get, we decide everything about the rabbi. You could still give a talk about Israel that didn't alienate a huge piece of your congregation. Not just alienate them, but threaten your job security. Yeah. That has never happened. So as as much as the people had control, it, let's say, and I'm going to go to Reconstructionism, because we pride ourselves on that, the lay professional partnership. Even so, you, there weren't so many mind... What do they call it? Minefield. It's a minefield. There there wasn't a mine you could step on every five steps that could blow your career. Now there is because it's become so politicized. Because we have no common ideology. and, And the things that bind us in terms of any kind of Jewish ideology are the things we're fighting about, even within our congregations, the most viciously. Um, so Hartman is, is doing something called the Courageous Leadership Project because they wanna be they wanna be addressing these challenges. And it's about how to keep, you know, leaders, Jewish leaders from being ousted and replaced by people who are good politicians but really bad rabbis.
2: <laughs>
0: right, folks who are really good politicians are probably not who you want as your rabbi. So how do you keep rabbis safe? in their jobs enough to lead you know, and, and to not be politicians um, and so you know, part of what's making it worse, what's exacerbating it he says there's a re- the reinforcing elements of American Jewish the American Jewish influence economy are the philanthropic power that we talked about mm-hmm. if you have the money and you decide what happens next the philanthropic power and the influence that has is huge so can a rabbi stand up to that? Can a rabbi say, you know, I have to disagree with the chairman of the board respectfully that I think we're going down the wrong, right? Um, and the relationship of the state of Israel to the organized Jewish community in America. So in other words, the, the state of Israel and the relationship of, of a lot of my people to the state of Israel trumps my relationship with those same people and my relationship to those Jewish ideas. was a rabbi. As a rabbi, yeah. Uh, excuse me. Uh, at the last convention,
1: Reconstructionist convention, it was a whole workshop devoted to uh, what can the rabbi speak from the pulpit. And looking back on that, how you know how wonderful it was for them to have that. And it fits right in with what we're
0: So we have to go beyond that. We have to go beyond what can the rabbi say from the pulpit and be safe. We have what what he's arguing is we have to give rabbis networks, we have to give them tools, we have to give them ways to with real gumption and real smarts and real effective mechanisms, we have to give them a way to cope in this new environment. And that's where we're not. We're still saying, Can we talk about it? Can we not? What's that like? What is it fit? Okay. That's great that we've started identifying it. He's saying, we now have to figure out how to give rabbis the ways and other Jewish professionals the way to lead their institutions without feeling like they can't say anything of any import without having to worry about, are they going to be able to come to work tomorrow? He said, it's hard to be on social media and everyone's on social media. He says, because the news cycle changes so fast, and rabbis and other Jewish leaders are expected to respond immediately. And if not immediately, very, very, very quickly. And he says, that can be really dangerous, right? If the message they give is out of line with what their constituents want to hear when something blows up in wherever, Poughkeepsie. God forbid Poughkeepsie. You're expected to respond right away, but if you respond in a way that alienates your constituents, you're toast. And he says the dominant reason this has happened is because what it means to be a Jew in America is to be a political actor, and they're looking for rabbis to be political guides but you better not be the wrong kind of political guide. <laughs> yeah. He says, most rabbis and Jewish educators and professionals are not taught to know much about the number of Iranian centrifuges, but it has become a central criterion for evaluation of rabbinic leadership. And yes, yes. When that whole thing broke, are you kidding? I, I, I had to read something this big just to be able to defend any kind of position, even if it was saying I'm not taking a position. I had to know. I had to read the whole booklet on Iranian centrifuges. What, how much material do they have? How close are they to nuclear? How? What are exactly the... the you? Because we're expected to be able to weigh in on it, and you better not weigh in on the wrong side. All right. So he said the other thing that, what are the other consequences is it an inevitable bifurcation, that on any issue there are two positions. Of course. At least. At 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 least least two. But usually two that are mutually exclusive. Exclusive. Uh, One you're supposed to take, and the other that if you take it, you're not just wrong, you are now the moral enemy of the person who holds the other opinion. That is a change in identity and ideology as well that now it's not just I disagree with you. It's you are now my moral enemy if you're on the other side of that issue, that that has raised the heat and the stakes, both within the the Jewish communities and, of course, between leadership and um, laity. He says, for the Jewish community, there's been a transformation of the significant other, which is what I said before. It is no longer the Jew, but your political ally. Right, that, that's what mm-hmm. defines other. Mm-hmm. It's not non-Jew who's other, mm-hmm. and we're not other to the non-Jew as a Jew. Mm-hmm. It's now who's your political ally. That defines otherness.
1: There was a program here a couple of weeks ago about the Jews of Mexico, and it was the total flip side of this. I was quite surprised. There were 40,000 Jews in Mexico, and they basically still live in a very isolated, walled community, right. as Jews do in other places in Latin America. And it's the complete opposite of this. And it's possible, I'm just thinking out loud, that it's the external threat that makes their standing together more important than any other differences, because right. we that don't helps, have the
0: threat. That helps enforce right. what is my primary yeah, identity, we, and then what ideology do we share Right. that helps... Most, most Jews coat? don't. It helps so, us respond.
1: Most Jews don't feel threatened. I think a lot of well, the. Well, because it's not does. a
0: primary like identity American. in America right. anymore. But it's, it's changing. In fact, when I grew up, if Hitler
3: defined you as a Jew you were a Jew and you better right. that was okay. a major identification. But the assimilations disappeared. But with the increase in anti-Semitism,
0: I think it's going to go back. To the, the more I, I don't agree. I don't. Th- I think. I think. Anti-Semitism is its own thing. It is not increasing in this country. We are seeing more permission being given to the same anti-Semites to do what they've been doing in secret, to do it a little more loudly and a little more publicly. I do not believe American opinion is in any way sliding back to identifying us as primarily as Jews. I just do not. I disagree.
1: There was a Democratic debate. Tonight, and two, two of the two of the candidates, to and nobody, nobody was saying, "Oh, well, you Jewish say Jew. could that's never right. be right. Although Peter no, right. was saying that about about Kudish, <laughs> right? Or it wasn't an gay. issue. Right? Yes, it wasn't a Jewish
0: issue. So my lesbian identity gets me right. still a little more <laughs> right, right, you know, whatever <laughs> than my Jewish identity. As a Jewish lesbian, it's like forget about it. I'll never be president. Okay. So, but that,
2: <laughs> that, we need you here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Judith.
0: Um, one of the consequences. That I care a lot about obviously someone I just said about the threat to Jewish professionals because the other thing he said is so people are not going into Jewish leadership and it wasn't just him several of the scholars that we talked to said they're very concerned because of this dynamic because of the very existential and very real threat to rabbis and Jewish leaders like federation leaders um, and other people there's a dearth of people wanting to go into Jewish leadership they're like thank you no I got a weigh in on Facebook on how many centrifuges, Iran, had, no thank you very much nope, that is not, I want to study Torah I want to teach Torah, I want to be with people who are dying I want to raise up little kids to feel proud about being, taking care of the world and nature and right, like, no thank you He's, but, but the other one I'm really concerned about is he said there's a deep thinning out because of all of this of Jewish identity in America He said, it's all about having the right politics. And if that's all it's about, I really don't need Judaism. What do I need Judaism for? And he said, this is manifesting in a decline in Jewish philanthropy, a serious, steep decline in Jewish philanthropy, and money towards Jewish cultural institutions, as one example. Jewish art, Jewish culture, Jewish museums, <coughs> Jewish music, Jewish theater. There's been a precipitous decline in philanthropic giving to those kinds of institutions because it's like, hmm, if it's all about politics, what do I really need Jewish theater for? I can go to regular theater. The huge focus, um, also, he says, right now, given our situation that George just pointed to, the huge focus on anti-Semitism and security has skewed how many resources, how much time, how much energy is going into the focus on security in Jewish institutions. And that's for sure the case for us. The amount of money that we spend at KI on armed guards, on security, we program here seven days a week from morning till what time is it now? Mm -hmm. And Uh, y'all go home, they have to wait. For everybody to go, right? We have to put security in place for all of those hours, seven days a week, morning through night. And if you don't have enough guards, and you think, how many guards do you think want to drive out to Pacific Palisades? Mm-hmm. You think they live here? Mm-hmm. They're driving from wherever. They're driving for minimum wage for whatever you know we pay, like to sit at that booth, watching for stickers. Oh, well, we're nice. Hoping nobody, right? So, um, what we pay? So then, what we pay in overtime because we can't find enough guards to cover those shifts. Um, so I know just here, and I'm not criticizing us. I'm just saying I totally understand what they're talking about. Our Jews are already stretched to pay full membership dues. Now we have to add a security fee of what? What are we charging now? Two hundred eight. Five hundred. Okay, like really? he's one rabbi said to Yehuda Kurtzer, most of the time in the past, I was able to talk to my congregation about pastoral things. Now all they want to talk to me about is ballistic windows.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. which ones what size? How much will it cost? Well, if we go with a lower grade of ballistic what- yeah.
1: and particularly mm-hmm. as it concerns children in the school, a hundred
0: percent of course, all right he says that this kind of hyper-focus on Jewish security is bad for Jewish security because it misses the actual context of what's actually happening. We might see more anti-Semitism. Is it actually more of a danger? And how much? But we're going to spend all this so that we're sure everybody seems like we're doing what's proportional, right? So it's bad for security because it doesn't really take the the real context into real consideration and it's bad for Judaism that that's what right people are are so focused on All right but there have been attacks of course of course there ways. have been yes. of course no one is suggesting we shouldn't be serious about security right, right. No. god forbid nobody would suggest that it's about because we see a few more and it gets a lot of press. Does that re- what does that really mean for what best practices are to really deter an attack? And and who's gonna tell us that? Right, you know, so, right.
2: so um right. who told us to get the security system that we have? Or did we get that information? I'm sorry? Who you said who's gonna tell us the better practices? We have to hire someone. That's yes. what we do.
0: But we hire the, the professionals. The but, but does that security own, professional yes. really understand, writ large, the global American real threat?
2: Clearly not.
0: From anti-Semitism, who who can? Who, based on what evidence? Like so you know. So all right. Um, all right. So the other thing is that he, said, he says the. Um, the, the Holocaust, you know, and, and anti-Semitism, and all of those things that that get us going, um, and the founding of state and the founding of the state of Israel. Those two events have, in large part, defined what it means to be a Jew in America. And now that we're even leaving our agreement on some of that stuff, the founding of the state of Israel and what that means, right? And probably less, a little bit less anti-Semitism. He said, we focused so much on that, and that has been so much a defining factor of American Jews that we have not done the alternative work of developing a rich and robust American Judaism for our time. And that is the main challenge now, he believes, is how do we develop a rich, relevant, vibrant American Judaism for our time? That's on us in this room. Of course, we have to take seriously conversations about Israel and the future of Zionism. Of course, we have to take seriously anti-Semitism and blah, blah, blah. That's it. Okay. Good night. Really? That's all? That's going to be what defines who we are as Jews? That's pathetic. That's just pitiful. Really? I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about them. I'm not saying they're not important. He's not suggesting that. But that's all that defines American Judaism? Really? So someone said they feel like the the last, maybe the, and I think it may have even been Kurtzer who said it, he said, maybe the last great work about American Judaism, I was the only one to stand up (laughs) and cheer, was, he said, may have been Mordecai Kaplan's Judaism as a civilization. Think about that. First of all, it was this big, but <laughs> it was published when? <laughs> 90, 90, Later than that, but, right? But 20s? 30s? Really? That's probably the last major, um, major work about American Judaism.
2: And giving a, a boundary to the fact that there is an American Judaism. There is an American Jewish experience. Right.
0: What is it? There's an American Judaism. What is it? What should it be? What do we want to talk about? What do we want to learn? What do we want to lean into? What do we want to engage with? What Jewish values do we want to be applying to our commitments to the environment? To you know whatever it is. But like, and I'm not saying that's what it needs to be. But y'all, I hope agree that a Judaism that's an American Judaism that is defined by Israel or the Holocaust and anti-Semitism is not a Judaism most of us are going to be terrifically proud of. And and is it relevant to to anything besides those two conversations? The good news is I'm preaching to the choir, (laughs) right? Y'all are the ones who come. Y'all are the ones who show up. You're the ones who are my adult learners. You're the ones who engage in Torah study. You're the ones who go away on retreat with me. right? You're the ones who go to Israel with me and have a conversation right, about the difficult stuff over there. So, so I know I'm preaching to the choir, but we have to think about, all right, this choir needs to start singing. We're going to start learning some music, people. Right, Because if we ain't singing, then the only voices that are being heard are the ones that define us in relationship to Israel or to anti-Semitism. And that is not a Judaism that's going to excite most American Jews. Um, And it was interesting because he said, if we don't have a major, massive Jewish cultural renewal in America, we can't be in real relationship to Israel. It's not a dialogue then. It's we're being defined either by our relationship to Israeli politics, which is based on our American politics, right? Um, or we're letting Israel, Israelis define who we are to them. Like who's a Jew? And that changes, by the way, based on what you need to be a Jew for. The right of return? Hitler gets to decide that. But can you marry a Jew once you get there as a Jew according to Hitler? No, no. <clears throat> no, right. So legally, who's a Jew in Israel? That's weird. It's dependent on for what purpose. Yeah. Uh, which we had a huge lecture on, mm-hmm. on about the, looking at the actual laws in Israel about who's a Jew, um, and so we can So they're going to define. Who's a Jew? By what conversion standards? By who you got born to? But whatever. Um, OK, so that's the only way we're going to have a relationship unless we have a robust American Judaism and understand our American Jewish values and our American relationship to the idea of Jewish nationalism, which is Zionism, um, and a robust Judaism that is not about they hate us and are always trying to kill us.
1: I would add an S to that. American Judaism is plural. Because aside okay. from the different flavors of, of Reconstructionist, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, a big difference between different parts of the nation, between East Coast and West Coast is an example. Sure, but so it's, I don't know that there's one but, American Judaism. But
2: is, is there there's some Judaism. kind of
0: sense I would love I us would to have some <laughs> conversations about, is there a progressive Jewish ideology that does unite East and West? I would hope so. We might, I would <laughs> hope so. We might have some differences about how that's expressed, mm. but I would hope. Or why are we having the board of mm. the Reconstructionist movement come out here in March? Weather's good? <laughs> well, that's why they're coming. Why are we having them, right? If they have nothing to say to us, if we have no kind ideology and identity, what's, what's the point? So as much as there's been a revolution in this, that can be a good thing, and that can be an opportunity, but we had better seize it. Or ident- Jewish identity will, what will it even mean? It'll just become all about politics. What will Jewish ideology look like? It'll be about anti-Semitism and our response to that, and Israel and Jew- Jewish nationalism I don't want to see Judaism reduced to the responses to those two things or to, for it to be dominated by the conversation about those two things and Jewish infrastructure has got to change I believe we, we are in a good spot I, that's why I came here seriously, now I'm t- talking fundamentalism I'm a fundamentalist holy roller for what we're doing here Because I believe this is the answer to the challenge to Jewish infrastructure, which is to both open the gates wider and bigger to have more non-Jewish tushies in the seat in our ECC and let them be exposed to a Jewish education. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Why not? Right? We share enough with our common you know, uh, ideologies of Americans, I think, to have kids who their parents would be happy to have them in a religious environment that's progressive, that's not fundamentalist, and that would be informed by the Jewish seasons, the Jewish holidays, and Jewish language for values that we find universal. Right? So we can shift the infrastructure in ways that are positive about our identity and our ideology, and an American Judaism that is welcoming to non-Jews being participants in, in our school, let's say. right? Because I think that's a key to our infrastructure here at KI, is having the school become, the preschool become a profit center again. Yeah. So and if it's not Jewish kids, because they're not moving into the Palisades at the same rate anymore, because houses cost $17 million here, OK. But, no. but, we, but that doesn't mean our infrastructure goes away. It means we need to respond right to this historical moment and this historical opportunity to become a thriving center for lots of kinds of conversations and lots of kinds of interactions, both among Jews and among all the many non-Jews who were part of our family. Not just non-Jews who are not KI. Non-Jews are our family.
1: So if, if I'm understanding correctly, and we're trying to redefine a unique American Judaism and marry Jewish values with what have traditionally been American values. Right now, we're living in an America where a lot of those traditional American values are being upended, and and where, or large sections of the country, are embracing xenophobia and isolationism and, and homophobia and anti-Semitism. And
0: so maybe right now is not the time to do this. <laughs> so um, he he would argue it's it's absolutely the time to do this because Judaism has something uniquely to say about xenophobia, right? Judaism has something to say about being the stranger, mm-hmm. and we should say it and we should say it proudly. Now we have to be careful, right? Obviously, because this is where we get stuck. In okay, so how do you give rabbis the tools to both address that issue and not get in trouble with the folks who want to build a wall? right? So I've spoken a little bit, like, this much from the Bema and High Holidays about immigration, and you'd never know it, but I hope the message slid <laughs> in, right? That Because I'm not talking policy, because I think what we can do is we can reframe the conversation mm-hmm. and say, I refuse to make this about politics. I refuse to make this about policy. Y'all will have to make the decisions when you go to the voting booth. What candidate you feel like speaks to your your understanding of what policies would best address the values that you hold. Here are some Jewish values around the topic. Right, does that make sense? Like we, we have to. We, ha- we have to. Now, how do we stay safe enough to keep our jobs and do that, that that's, that's the rub, and that's where he, That's where this Center for Courageous Leadership, like Hartman's doing the research, Hartman's doing some experiments, Hartman's a laboratory and a think tank to try to think through how do we both make clear values, statements, or explore Jewish texts around, and we're a multi-vocal tradition. Like, there's lots of different voices in our tradition. I'm not suggesting it's monolithic. Um, but how do we explore that honestly and get excited about it and have a real American Jewish expression that might result in very different political decisions at the ballot box.
2: Oh, superheroes, I mean, most of the well-known superheroes were created by Jewish Americans, so you can maybe use that as things like that, elements of pop culture with the Jewish influence as a starting point. That's part of what's Caused this what looks like a thinning of identity but might be bringing more people in which is what you're looking to do
0: right. so when we bring them in the, the thinning of identity, identity is values. about what are we bringing them into mm-hmm. and that, that's what we have to have a, a more rich deep conversation right. about is yes we should be bringing them in what, what are we bringing them into you spoke about how
2: ideology has to be a lot more than relationship with Israel and condemnation of anti-Semitism. How would you what would you envision as the foundations of a modern American Jewish ideology?
0: It is a really, really good question. Um, he kind of tossed it off as kind of like a isn't it sad that but he was all, but i think he's not wrong to say i think mordechai kaplan's a really good place to start i think reconstructionist judaism is uniquely situated to honestly confront both the revolutionary challenges that we're dealing with and the changes that we're dealing with with a re, mordechai kaplan was depressed a lot but he wrote stuff that was really hopeful right about h- how to I think we have to take seriously the tradition, and we have to take seriously our texts and our philosophers, and we have to be ready to learn more and want to learn more, and then apply that to our unique American situation today. But
2: you have, to have a positive vision. If you define your, your religion as, you know, we survived the Holocaust, and yeah, you know, we created the right. state of Israel even on its problem step you're defining yourself in terms of negatives and and you need a positive vision
0: to inspire people that's right so that's why I think engaging with our philosophers and our texts and our questions and our Torah study and our you know whatever and our spirituality and our you know whatever um, that's a positive it's not in response to Mm -hmm. either how Israelis define us or we define our relationship to Jewish nationalism nor how anti-Semites define us or right and Where to focus? Maybe that's your question. Like, where do we lean in? I'm not sure.
2: What about community
0: building? But uh, but will that, but but what's the content of that community building? So relationship is definitely at the center of it. But what's the Jewish content? And so that's part of what it's my job, right, <laughs> to kind of figure some of that out. Um, I'm finding some of it at Hartman. Like, okay, so how do we think about this stuff? The fact that we're talking about it. I think that's a huge step forward, yes. right? All y'all who diagnose, uh, right? Diagnosis is like a really important step in trying to figure out. Okay, so what do we feed? What do we feed the person, right? What, what do we feed the situation that's now been diagnosed as mm-hmm. these revolutionary changes? If we can get our head around the fact that these are revolutions, not evolutions, I think we might have more of a sense of urgency and excitement around. Okay. Guess what? People wanted to sing. So we have a KI women singing group that meets twice a month now. Mm-hmm. They're learning Jewish music. They're they're just wanting to sing together. Mm-hmm. We're going on a retreat. 52 women are going on Jewish retreat together mm-hmm. to study, to learn, to sing, to chant, to... Drink. Cocktails? <laughs> right, so, like, they, they... That is an amazing... Like, we're going to have storytelling. Judith Ubik's going to tell her story. Like, so it's... I, and we want to do. We want to like, do a, what it means to be a Jew. Yes, <laughs> right.
2: And your Jewish
0: journey, which is not typical of what Jewish journeys always look like. And so, and we want to do a co-ed retreat. So I'm just saying, I don't know, but I think there's a lot. I believe, or I wouldn't have studied what I studied. I believe there's so much if we make that the priority. If we stop allowing either our conversations about Israel or reaction to anti-Semitism to dominate. All right, I'm going to close this because I know you all want to go home. When people start reaching for their purses, I'm like, okay, obviously we're at the we're at time. Um, so uh, he he says we have to move out of this thing of 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 a binary thinking about Israel about like all these uh, kinds of things, um, and that's the only way we're going to actually be able to have a relationship with those ideas, a relationship with Israel, a relationship with uh, whatever. That um, it's messy, but we're going to have to move out of this sense of a binary about so many. issues Shoes and we're going to have to explore the messy uh, middle. And so he closed with this. He said, we are the land of the Jewish free. We now need to make this the land of the Jewish brave. So I'm going to ask you all to help me do that. That's very good. Er-tub.